because now every sale becomes different. So it's incredibly easy to control the narrative, the dialogue, and also line up these first two core elements, and of course, go to the third one now, which is the company that you work for. In a game like real estate, you're an agent, they must love the property, trust and connect with you, but also trust the company that stands behind the product, the real estate broker, the car company, the insurance company. Sometimes in some businesses, in smaller businesses especially, the first 10 and the second or third, they might overlap in some way. But still, you have to explain them in the context of like the company that provides the service, that will give you customer service, that will be there if something goes wrong, that will have a relationship with you for the long term. So all three elements must line up in the prospect's mind. If one of these three is missing, they're not going to say to you, oh, wow, Jordan, you're really great, but I don't really trust you. Or I'm not that certain your product is the best. That's not what, it would be amazing if after you asked them for the order, they'd say, well, I'm really not that certain about the product and I don't really trust you very much. But that's not what people do. Prospects don't do that. They say, eh, sounds good, let me think about it. Let me call you back. Send me some information. Send me some information why. So I can read it and make myself more certain. That's what they're saying. Let me speak to my wife because I'm not certain enough to make the decision without her because she's going to kill me if I'm wrong. Or vice versa, the wife and the husband. The wife says, I, I need to speak to my husband because imagine this. Now, there are some businesses, like real estate, for example, where you have to have both decision makers there. Now, imagine a husband, oh, yeah, honey, I bought a house. <laughs> You're fucking dead, right? <laughs> vice versa. Honey, guess what? I just bought a house. She's a husband. What do you mean you bought a fucking house, right? But there are many businesses where one party makes the decision. They can. You know they can. If they're that fucking certain that they're right, they'll make the decision without the partner because they know the partner is going to be happy because they know they're right. But if they're uncertain, they're not going to go out on a limb and make the decision on their own. They want to have, they want to have like sort of like, I want you to be in on this too, so it's just in case it's wrong, so you can't blame me. Everyone understand that? It's just so crucial because if you get someone to a, Basic level of certainty, they're gonna wanna, th they're gonna want to check, they're gonna wanna find, and rightfully so, because people aren't stupid. They wanna be certain. Now, how certain, that depends on the person. I'll get to that later, because there's two other elements that you add on to these three. There's five core elements of the straight line in total. There are five elements that you can play with that work almost like the combination to a safe. Now, if you recall, put the first three up. The first three are the three tens, right? I don't know if you have this in, in uh, Australia, but like when you're going to school in the United States, we had the gym lockers and you have a lock on your gym locker. You have that here? And they were like these master locks, three numbers, left, right 31, left 12, right, 11, right? Do you have those three combinations? You have those here? Three numbers? Whatever, those are simple locks. 
relatively easy to pick, so to speak. Then you have the fucking Israeli jobs, right? That are like five numbers, impossible to crack unless you're a world-class safe cracker. Those are more difficult. Some combinations are easy, like a three-number combination. Other safes are very hard to crack. The same thing goes with human beings. Some people are easy to close. People like myself. I'm a sucker. I love to buy shit. And I'm easy to sell to. Seriously, I buy shit that happened in Australia. I'll give you a perfect example. Once, many years ago, I'm walking through the airport in Perth, right? I do a lot of business out in Perth, right? I'm walking through an airport in Perth, and I hear, fuck. I'm like, what the fuck? It's like a golf ball was hit in the airport. And I look, and sure, I see some slender Asian kid in like a trophy pose holding a golf club inside the terminal. So I walk up to him with my agent back then, a guy named Nick, you know Ben Fordham, the newscaster's brother, Nick Fordham, right? And I walk up, and Nick Fordham and I, and I'm like, what is it? It's a guy in a, like a, in a booth, he's selling some golf contraption. And basically, it's a, it's a, 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 a styrofoam golf ball with, with, like, with um, like a, a Velcro in the end, and you have Velcro on the face of the club, and the guy goes, watch, and he gives me a demonstration. He goes, here's how you do this. He goes, Phew. he goes, look, it sticks, and the ball sticks to the club, right? And he goes, you can see which point, you know, the inside and the outside, the toe of the heel, and it'll fix your golf swing. Now, who plays golf here? It's the fucking hardest sport. This, I know this thing is not going to work, right? So what do I say? How much does it cost? He goes, only $75. I'm like, fuck it, I'll buy it. And I bought the fucking thing, right? My age is like, oh, Jerry, here he goes again. He buys the fucking thing. I knew it was a piece of shit, all right? But I bought it anyway. I know it's not going to fix my swing because nothing's going to fix my fucking swing except fucking years of practice, right? I get onto the plane, the thing fucking already breaks and unfolds on the fucking plane, right? It's a piece of shit, right? That's me, right? Then there's my father. May he rest in peace. Mad Max from the movie. Fucking Mad Max. But boy, this guy did not come to the table to make friends with salespeople. The chances of him buying any miracle golf course in the airport are like fucking Slim and Nil, and Slim left town a long time ago. If my father is walking through the airport and he hears, fuck, what the fuck is that? Let's say he's a golfer. He walks up, what is this? He looks at the guy, oh, sir, let me show you. Same demonstration. My father's that fucking bastard. Who the hell is he to hit a fucking golf ball in the airport? I'm a fucking No, no, thank you. How much? No, never do it. Never would do it. No, never would do it in a million years. No one's selling my dad a miracle golf cure. Never. Why? Why would I buy it? And why won't he? It's a good question, right? Like, what is it about people like my father versus people? I mean, who here is easy to sell to? Raise your hand. A lot of people, right? Yeah. Who here is difficult to sell to? Raise your hand. 50, 50, 30, whatever it might be. Some people, by their very natures, their beliefs about buying, trusting salespeople, making decisions in general, they're difficult to sell to. That's called having a very high action threshold, meaning you have to get into a 10, 10, 10, and damn sure of it, or they're not buying from anybody. If they're at a 999, no fucking way. They're not buying anything. Me, I don't have to be at a 10, 10, 10. I could be at a 776. Like, fuck it, I'll do it. What the hell? Now, again, the difference between my father and myself are the beliefs that we have about buying, about trusting the people, salespeople especially, making decisions in general 
I believe that my best decisions are made quickly on gut. I like to go with my gut. That's me. I also generally trust people. And also, I think that like, I have the wherewithal. Like, you know what? If, it, if it's an amount of money I could afford to lose, fuck it. What do I say? What's the worst that could possibly happen? I asked, I'm not stupid. I asked myself that question. Every time I'm faced with a buying decision, I ask myself, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And what's my best outcome? What's the best outcome that could happen? Guess what? My father does the same thing. When he's faced with a buying decision, in the moment, at that last moment, he says, what's the worst that could possibly happen? And what's my best outcome? He's not stupid, I'm not stupid. The difference is, is that because of our belief systems, we run very different versions of this strategy. What I will do is face with that decision, I'll say, what's the worst that could happen? Hmm. I don't run a very long, toxic, negative movie in my mind. So you run parallel movies. What's my best outcome? What's my worst outcome? We all do that before we make decisions. Our, the human brain is incredibly powerful. We run these long, or sometimes all these movies in our mind and pictures. What's my best outcome? What's my worst outcome? Because of my beliefs, when I'm faced with a decision, I'll run a very long, positive movie. In my mind, I'll say, you know, this thing probably sucks, but if this thing fuck works, I'll be on the fucking 18th hole of fucking Augusta. The fans are fucking watching. I'll take a perfect fucking four right on the green. I'll feel so good in the fucking bragging rights in the fucking, I'll run this long, incredible, positive movie. And then I go to the negative side, and if it doesn't work, I'll fuck it. I'll just throw it away. And I blunt the negative movie. What does my dad do? Oh, well, he runs the negative movie. By the time he's done, the guy stole his credit card information. His neighbors think he's an idiot for buying it. It made his golf swing worse. He's broke living under a bridge and bankrupt. <laughs> and if it works, yeah, maybe it'll work. Fuck it. He doesn't allow himself to run the positive movie. He blunts it. People with high action thresholds run very short, positive movies and very long, artificially exaggerated negative ones. People with low action thresholds like me run exaggerated, long, positive movies, glass half full type of shit, and we blunt the negative. That's how we're built. Does that make sense to everyone? And then you have all the levels in between. I'm ultra high. I'm ultra low, excuse me, I have a very low action threshold, which makes me very easy to sell to. Much to the chagrin of my wife, I buy, she says, what the fuck are you doing? You're buying this shit again. I'm like, ah, it's all right, what the, it's a big deal. She's like, no, because she's very, she's not trusting, she's a high action threshold, like my dad. High, low. That's the fourth number to the combination lock, is lowering someone's action threshold. When do you realize that you have to do it? Well, you're not gonna realize right up front, you'll realize after you've been through your presentation, you've run something that I'll explain later called a looping pattern, you get someone very certain they're still not buying. You're like, fuck, you know, they sound really certain. I've kind of given them three or four different reasons why they should be certain. I know they're in rapport with me, they trust me, they said they trust me. My company's awesome, they know that, why aren't they buying still? The reason is because they have a high action threshold. 
That's when it reveals itself. So, so, with a, so imagine the straight line, right? This is the open, this is the close. So someone with a low action threshold like me will close closer to the front of the line. Someone with a high action requires more work. They have to be made more certain. Now here's another question. Where is the prospect, whether it's me and my father, where is the prospect when they first enter the sale? This is the open, this is the closed. The moment they enter the sales encounter, where are they on the certainty scale? Where? Anyone know? Five, three, zero, what is it? Year one. Who the fuck knows? Unless you're Kreskin, the great mind reader Kreskin, how could you possibly know where they are? Well, I know one thing, they're somewhere. Why? Because they're from Earth. They, they, whatever you're selling, I can assure you, the moment they realize what you're selling, their brain has heard about it before. Oh, you're selling cars? Bing, I'm here. About cars. You're selling Toyotas? I'm at a six. You're selling Mercedes? I'm at a nine. You sell iPhones? I'm at a ten. You sell timeshares? I'm at a zero. So based on your industry, and I'm not even kidding with timeshares, and, and by the way, I have nothing against timeshares because there's some really good ones out there. Okay, some are very legitimate, but there are some bad ones too in the past that have tarnished the reputation of the industry, which make it more difficult for people selling a good product. So depending on what you're selling, people will either enter typically higher or lower on the certainty scale based on the product you're selling and if it's a brand or not. Well-established brands that have a lot of integrity behind them and years of good service, people tend to enter higher. The point is, is that wherever they enter, they enter somewhere. Where are you? Where's the salesperson? Where are you the salesperson? Where are you? You better be in a fucking 10. That's your job. Now, the job of the salesperson is you are at a 10. You're absolutely certain and damn sure of it. Evidenced by your tonality, your body language, your comp, you get it? That creates a gradient, essentially a differential of certainty. You're absolutely certain, they're not as certain. So the goal is, I said sales is what? The transference of emotion, certainty. So you're transferring the certainty that you have to the prospect so they become as certain as you. Hopefully it's gotta get above their action threshold and they'll buy. That's what's going on when you sell. Your certainty is essentially being transferred to the prospect. Now, I briefly said to you, I said, remember, the straight line doesn't create certainty. It transfers certainty. Here's the metaphor. You could have a home, a beautiful home, with a state-of-the-art HVAC system, all the tubing and the ductwork, right? That transfers the heat to the house, the various rooms of the house. And there's a boiler, a furnace in the basement. If the furnace is not on, if there's no heat coming out of the furnace, I don't care how powerful or great the ductwork is, you're not heating up the rooms. The furnace creates the heat, the ductwork transfers it elegantly without dissipating all the heat and the energy. It efficiently transfers the energy, right? The straight line is the ductwork. You are the furnace. 
You need to be in a state of certainty, which is why state management is so crucial. Because if you're feeling uncertain and doubtful, it comes across like the penguin that first day. Once he lost his state of certainty, he had nothing. He could have had great sales skills. He was an okay salesperson, but when he lost his state of certainty, he had nothing to offer the people because they're entering at lower levels of certainty. They have to be essentially educated through language, through body language, tonality, to raise their level of certainty through the three types of communication. The words that we say, the tonalities that we apply, our body language, we essentially transfer certainty using the straight line tactics. We transfer certainty to the three tens to raise them up above their action threshold. And if that doesn't work because the action threshold is too high, we will lower the action threshold. There's a way to lower someone's action threshold. There's actually three ways, one most powerful of all. We can lower the prospect's action threshold temporarily and step through that window and close. That's how the fourth element comes into play. So if the first three aren't doing the trick, great. I'll then lower the person's action threshold. Number five, the last element is called the pain threshold. So one of the things that we do, and now is a perfect time to go to what's called the straight line syntax. The straight line syntax refers to the order in which you go about transferring certainty. What's the order in which you do this? Well, number one, the first step always is you must take immediate control of the sale. That happens in the first four seconds. Right? You're taking control. So we go back to this. The first few seconds, right? You take control. What does that mean? I am out of time already? How is that fucking possible? I can fucking, can I talk or can I talk? Admit it, right? I can talk, right? Jesus Christ. I love this shit. <laughs> can I go over a few minutes for you guys? Yeah. All right, let me go over and finish, right? And I'll go quickly, right? Take immediate control of sale. We use that control not to talk, 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 talk. We want to use that to step two, to start gathering intelligence. Go to step two, gathering intelligence. Whenever you feel like it, just go to step two. There you go, right? <laughs> All right? Don't rush. We're not in the rush here, right? Step three is building rapport. Those two happen simultaneously. The way you build rapport with someone is by asking questions and listening to them actively. Aha, uh -huh, ah, got it. Finishing their statements, helping them clarify their own needs, taking the time to really listen to someone. People hate to be sold to, they love to buy. People wanna be listened to. Ask questions and use something called active listening. Uh, like, ah, ooh, ah, ooh, ee, mm, mm, I'm exaggerating. But the worst thing you could do is ask questions. Uh huh, got, got, you're the grand inquisitor, yep. 10 questions that you ask 10 questions. By question four, they hate your guts. Versus doing it the right way, you're engaging in a dialogue. So gathering intelligence is a dialogue. You ask a question, you respond, ah, got it. You clarify their statement, you ask follow-up questions. By the time you're done asking all your questions, you will build such tight rapport with someone, they're like, wow, this person is sharp. Damn, they know their shit. Wow, this person really cares about my needs. They took the time to really find out what I needed. Not just they want to sell me, you understand? That's very powerful. Step four, when you've done all that, and you know everything you need to know, you want to do what's called your transition. 
to go from asking questions and identifying needs, values, and pain points. Remember about the pain threshold of step five? Pain points. You want to identify where does that pain lie? What's keeping, I don't mean pain in their arm or something. What's keeping them up at night? What's really making them worry right now in context of your product? Sometimes it can be very small things, but sometimes it can be profound. Like with insurance, it can be profound. Like they're worried that if they die prematurely, they'll leave their family in bad straits. That's a profound worry that someone might not verbalize very quickly, but you could very dig into with a few follow-up questions. Every product is going to have needs, values, and pain points of some sort. The, the transition is basically the point when you know everything you need to know, and you say, John, Jill, you know, James, whatever, you know, whatever the person's name is, you know, based on what you said to me, based on everything you just said to me, this is a perfect fit for you. Let me tell you why. This program, this product, this house, this car, this is the perfect fit for you. Let me tell you why. And that's your transition into your solution now, where you're going to make your initial presentation. And just to be clear, if you ask questions to someone and you find that they're not right for your product or can't afford your product, they don't qualify, you're going to want to exit them and say, listen, based on what you said, this is not right for you. You should go here and get, this is where you should be looking, not here. You don't want to waste your time trying to turn non-buyers into buyers. That's a fool's errand. So you're looking to sift through your pipeline to find the right buys, and then you continue those down the straight line with step five, which is you make your straight line presentation, which is where you now start building certainty by explaining the cost-benefit ratio, the value proposition, the features, the benefits, and that always ends with you asking for the order for the first time, which is step six. Step seven is when you're going to get hit with your first objection. Remember, after you ask for the order for the first time, you have three possibilities. That's it. They could say yes, they buy. They could say no, or they could say maybe. Maybe is a catch-all for all the common objections. Common objections are maybes, right? They say yes, great, it's rare, but you'll take it. It's a lay down. They say no is even more rare. They don't say no. Why? Why don't people say no at this point? Because you've already been through a qualifying session. You're already pitching to someone that's shown interest. We don't present to people who are not interested in what we have. So those people have weeded out of the system. You very seldom, you're not going to get someone who, who answered all the questions, was excited, you report, you make a great president. No, we don't want it. No, it's not what they say. They'll say, oh, it sounds good. Let me think about it. Let me call you back so you get hit with common objections. The next step is to deflect the initial objection. So you're not going to say, someone says, I want to think about it. I'm not going to start debating the merits of thinking about it or not thinking about it because I know that it doesn't matter. If I say to someone, listen, I know you want to think about it, but I'm doing this for a long time. And if you think about it, you'll put it in the back of your mind. You'll decide against it. I don't want that to happen right now. I know well, everything was fresh. You're blah, blah, fucking blah. And I say, why don't you buy right now? Whatever I say, try to get them to buy. It doesn't matter. There's nothing I could say that's going to get them to buy by just saying why you shouldn't think about it. You know why? Because it's a smokescreen. The problem is not that they really want to think about it. The problem is what? They're not certain. That's the problem. So the knee jerk is to say, let me think about it or let me call you back. They're uncertain. They're uncertain about what? The product, you, or the company. Which one? 
Who fucking knows? I mean, I don't know. Maybe he's maybe he or Marita. But no, but like, who knows? You don't know. But I know they all three have to lie. So I'm going to lo go logically and make it simple and close the same way every time. I'm going to start with the product and I'll run another pattern. I'll loop back. Say, I, I, so that's my first. I hear what you're saying. I understand you want to think about it. Let me ask you a question. Does the product, does the idea make sense to you? Do you like the policy? Do you like the car? Do you like the whole? I'll start with that. They'll say, yeah, it sounds pretty good. I'm like, ah, sounds pretty good. That's not a 10. That's like a six. I have work to do. I'm going to have a second and third and fourth pattern. So I don't just have an initial presentation about the product. I'm going to have at least two more because I need to raise their level of certainty. If they're not certain, I leave out information. I don't front load my presentation. I leave some stuff out. So I can raise their level of certainty, give them reasons why to change their mind. And after I'm done with that pattern, that second, I'll say, you, you understand what I'm saying? Now they're like, oh yeah. They'll say, yeah, no, it sounds great. And you've raised their level of certainty. With that's called a loop. So I get hit with a common objection that creates what's called a loop. So go to the step eight. Build certainty through looping. What that means is I get hit with a common objection after I ask for the order. And I deflect, I hear what you're saying, does the idea make sense? They say, yeah, it sounds good. And I loop back into presentation mode and say, exactly, the true, and I give them another pattern. Then I won't close, I'll say, ask them a question about, and if I've been your broker and I've been doing business with you for the last few years and made you money on a consistent basis, if I'd sold you five houses or three insurance policies, whatever it is, you probably wouldn't be saying, let me think about it right now. You'd be saying, Jordan, <laughs> how do I get started? And if you, and, am I right? And you know what they'll say? Yeah, of course. Well, then I would. If they say no, I say, wait a second. You mean to tell them because they're bullshitting you then. And I re-say it again with more. I say, come on, honestly. They'll say, well, yeah, well, then I would. I say exactly. You don't know me. I don't have a track record. And then I run what's called my Forrest Gump pattern. The reason it's called Forrest Gump is there's a scene from the movie Forrest Gump where little Forrest with his braces when he's a kid, right? He's not that smart. He goes up to the school bus and he freezes like a deer. And then, you know that scene where he, he won't get on the bus? And the teacher's like, well, are you getting on the bus, right? He's like, I don't know you. I don't talk to strangers. My mom said I can't talk to strangers. She's like, well, I'm your bus driver. He goes, well, I, you know, you're a stranger. And then he goes, well, I'm Forrest. I'm Forrest Gump. She goes, I'm Dorothy, your bus driver. He goes, I guess we're not strangers. He gets on the fucking bus. <laughs> Oddly enough, that's how human beings become familiar. You reintroduce yourself. If you want someone to trust you, Tell them you're trustworthy. Tell them why they should trust you. What's your name? You probably forgot your name already. What do you stand for? What degrees do you have? How hard do you work for your clients? What can you do for them over the short term and the long term? Tell them you're trustworthy. Trust is an odd thing for human beings. The pendulum of trust swings one way or the other way, not in the middle. When we distrust, we typically distrust too much. When we start to trust, we overtrust too quickly. The key is get the pendulum swinging in the right direction, and you can do that very easily with that pattern. And then you say, and as far as my company goes, then you talk about your company, and then you raise the level of certainty for the company, and then you ask for the order a second, a second time. That's called a loop. You build certainty for looping. Number nine is next. You then, the next time, if they still don't buy now, they still hit you what they'll do typically, they don't buy in that first loop, they'll hit you, they'll hop to a new objection. They'll just, they start off saying they want to think about it, they say, oh yeah, good, let me just call you back now, or let me speak to my wife. 
Now you're starting to say they probably have a high action threshold. You then lower their action threshold. How do you do that? And we're running out of time here. But very quickly, you run a pattern, which is basically you say to them, you, you would resell the product again, resell yourself again with your set, third pattern now, right? So you build a certainty for the product, build more certainty for yourself and the company. But before you ask for the order, you want to then insert this pattern. You say, John, let me ask you an honest question. What's the worst that can possibly happen here? Let's say I'm wrong. And then you tell them what's the worst that could happen if you're wrong. Don't let their mind run. Like my father, before he's done, he'll, you, I'll give you a perfect example. I once bought, and I gotta got end at this, we're really running late here. But I made $12 million in one day back in like 1988, right? And my father worked for me. He worked for me, not the other way around, right? My dad was my employee. Tell him that, he didn't fucking believe it, right? And he was so risk averse that after I just made this $12 million, I wanted to expand it by 10 desks and 10 chairs. The cost of the desks and chairs was like $1,200 collectively. I just made 12 million. And I knew he'd go berserk if I fucking, so I went and bought them without telling him, right? He found out I spent this money, this 12, he went, Fucking ape shit crazy on me. You motherfucker. I mean, he could curse like any Australian. And Australians are good curses, right? Well, my dad should have been Australian. He could fucking curse, right? It was like Walt Whitman with an attitude, right? He was a professional curser. He went fucking berserk on me. He stormed out of the office. Couldn't even see his livid, right? $1,200. I just made $12 million, right? That night, I called him back. And my mother says, oh, dad, your father's really mad, dad. I said, let me speak to my father. Right? He gets about what? What do you want? I said, Dad, listen, I understand. Listen, let me explain my rationale. I said, we just made all this money. I want to expand the firm, Dad. I know I can train more brokers to do what they can do. I said, but Dad, honestly, what's the worst that can possibly happen? Let's say we buy these 12 desks, right? And it turns out that I can't train more people. It doesn't work out. And we have to just take the desk, light them on fucking fire, and call it a day. Is that going to put us in the pause? Honestly, Dad, no. I said, right, but on the upside, I buy these 12 desks and chairs, I hire 12 people, it turns out I could duplicate this force and grow it, and over the next six months, we can grow to 500, 1,000 brokers and make a billion dollar company, Dad. All I'm asking for is this. You give me one shot with these 12 desks. If I'm right, okay, we'll then continue to grow. If I'm wrong, I'll never do this again. Does that sound fair enough? <laughs> He's like, fine, do it. Why? Because in that moment, I hijacked his movie. He, I didn't let his, I didn't say what's the worst that could happen. In his mind, it's fucking over. The firm is out of business. We're going to lose all of them. He is artificially creating this disaster scenario that's not realistic. You follow me? So by addressing the downside and the real upside, the upside's massive, the downside's small. In so many buying situations, you can do that elegantly and lower their action threshold, step through that window. Ask for the order again, and magically a lot of people will close right here. If they still don't buy, you have one more quiver left in your, so your arrow for your quiver, right? Number 10 is add-on pain. What does that mean? I'll tell you one more story about my dad, then we're gonna close, right? My father was a, the best, great dad, but he was fucking a bit weird, right? He loved material possessions. Like, he, he was so fastidious, so neat with everything. Like, his fucking sock drawer, his socks were lined up like a laser beam. Like, fucking everything was perfect. Everything he owned was perfect. His suits, his shirts, everything, right? But nothing was more important to him than his car. He loved his fucking car. 
It wasn't it was like an old Dodge dollar, right? But it, it was five years old, looked brand new, smelled brand new, right? And people with high action thresholds, like my father, they have one guy for everything. There's a car guy, there's a suit guy, there's an insurance guy. They have one supplier. They don't go to other people. So once you land them, they're great clients. So like, for instance, my father had Jimmy at the local Sunoco station. Was his, his guy to fix his car. If you would say, Dad, I got Enzo Ferrari's gonna fuck Enzo. Enzo cannot fix my fucking car. Jimmy's my fucking guy, right? No one's touching my father's fucking Dodge Dart. Enzo Ferrari, Mr. fucking Pina Farina himself, no one's touching his fucking beloved Dodge Dart, except Jimmy, because that's his car guy. We were like 11 years old, right? We were taking the Dodge Dart down to South Florida. It's like a 1,300 mile trip down the East Coast. We're somewhere around like Maryland, 600 miles from home. Not a great area, by the way, right? Like a hillbilly area where you get a, you know, not, and the car fucking steam starts coming out of the fucking radiator. Car dies on the side of the road. 5.30 at night, sun is starting to set. What do you think my father did? Went to the first fucking gas station he could find and fixed my car, I don't care. Why? In that moment, the pain, the worry of his family being exposed in an unsafe area, trumped all. So what happens to his action threshold? It drops to the floor temporarily. This is why it's so important to extract people's pain. What's their deepest worries? Once you know that, at the end of the cell, you could add it back on, remind them of what their pain is, lower their action threshold, step through that window, and that is your last quiver. From there, 11, step 11 is, either you close the sale or not, step 12 is, you then go about asking for referrals, and step 13 is creating customers for life. There's certain strategies to that as well. I'm out of time, guys, but listen, this strategy is so powerful, so powerful, and it's so easy to learn. It's one of those things that's really just, it's fucking easy. You take a little bit of time, dive into it, and it can be life-changing for any one of you. Seriously, and it's worth it. I have a fundamental belief that people deserve to live financially rich, empowered lives. I think everyone who deserves that should have everything that you want. That's my hope for all of you. I love you all, and thank you for listening and staying late. All right, you guys are the best. Thank you. Ladies You're the best. And thank you. Ladies, church, church. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, give it up for the one and only Jordan Belford. Thank you. You're the best. I love you.